Welcome to Down East Diversity, a main podcast that seeks to collect, document, and tell stories of people and culture in Maine. This program is brought in conjunction with Healthy Acadia, an organization whose mission is to empower people and organizations as we build healthy communities together. I'm Aline Siston, your host, and extremely excited to introduce my co-host Charlie Parker, a local high school student and our inaugural Downey's Diversity Fellow. To learn more about our fellowship program, visit our website, downeastdiversity.com. I'm also thrilled to introduce our guest today, Siroi Kumar, also a local high school student and a close friend of my co-host, Charlie. Siroi will share her experience growing up as a brown girl on Mount Desert Island. So, Sirohi, for the benefit of those who are listening, the audience members, would you mind telling us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. My name is Sirohi Kumar. I'm a 17-year-old senior at Mount Desert Island High School. I moved here in 2014 from Dallas, Texas, where my parents and I lived for five years. Before that, we lived in Chicago, Illinois, which is where I was born. Before Chicago, my parents lived in San Diego, California, which is where they moved after they got married. My mom moved from India, where she lived her whole life. And my dad, he'd moved to California a while ago from Memphis, where he grew up. He also moved from India, but when he was much younger. So I'm a first-generation American. When we moved to MDI, I got involved in social justice and climate justice work. I helped the Climate Emergency Action Coalition, a group of students and adults around MDI, of which I'm a founder, declare a climate emergency in Bar Harbor. I'm the youth representative on the Climate Emergency Task Force, which is a municipal group that's tasked with decreasing the carbon emissions of Bar Harbor by 2030. I'm also a founding member of the Anti-Racism Task Force, which is a group that formed on MDI after the BLM protests of 2020. I'm a student representative on that as well as Charlie Parker. I like to think that I'm just an involved member of the community. I really care about Bar Harbor and MDI. I feel like I've grown and I've sort of blossomed here in a way that I wouldn't have in any other environment. I appreciate what this island has done for me personally and my my mental state and my cognizance of the world so I feel it's personally my responsibility to make sure it's the best it can possibly be so that for every other brown girl who comes after me it can have an even better effect on her than it did on me. I definitely think people get to see a little bit more of you. Sorohi is very involved within the community here. Honestly Sorohi is probably one of the most motivated people I've ever met in my life if not the most and doing this all at such a young age, I just have to wonder, what is your motor? What drives you so deeply every day to be involved in these different activities constantly? I think one of my main motivators has been my own experience on MDI. It's a very nurturing place, but that doesn't mean it's free of ignorance or even hatred. One thing that comes to mind, in my sophomore year, I had a teacher who was telling us about how important it is that we find the correct motivation for his class because it was a very difficult class. He said that you need to find something that drives you personally. It can't be an external factor because if it's an external factor, you can remove yourself from it yeah and you Mm -hmm. you, it's not something that drives you it's something that drives someone else or something else Mm -hmm. and he was pointing out specific examples so he said for one student who's particularly athletic it might be a drive to make yourself healthy and to succeed and push your own boundaries and then he in a joking way i understand now said for instance sirohi can't take this class just because she wants to impress her parents Mm mm-hmm And I remember when he said that, I felt this big wave of anxiety wash over me. 
And it wasn't for any reason that I could pinpoint, but I felt vaguely sick for the rest of the day. And when I got home and I talked about it with my parents, I ended up understanding that the reason I felt so anxious was because it felt like a race-based comment. I was the only Indian and the only Asian, East or South, in that class. And this teacher had singled me out and said that my motivation couldn't be my parents. And it's a very well-known stereotype that South Asians and East Asians have tiger parents who are overbearing and push their kids to succeed regardless of the mental or physical health of their kids. And that's not at all what my parents are. My motivation for taking that class was personal. I wanted to do well. I wanted to understand the subject. And that interaction really shaped the way that I see that teacher today. And no matter how many more interactions I have with that teacher, it'll always come back to that thought that I have, which is that this teacher sees me as someone whose drive isn't personal or academic. It's from their parents. And that was a really negative experience I had. And I wouldn't want any other young brown girl to experience that. Now, every time I interact with my guidance counselors or other teachers, I worry, you know, do these people think that I'm trying to be excellent for myself or because my parents are forcing me to? And not only does that detract from how I see myself, it detracts from how other people see me. People will discredit my hard work and put it in the name of guilt complex I have because of my parents, which is just patently false. So one of my large motivators is trying to make sure that that kind of ignorance doesn't spread and that other young brown people and other young people of color aren't burdened with these unfair and false expectations. One of my main motivators for climate activism is the anxiety I feel about the future. Many young people, including myself, aren't sure whether the planet around them is going to be the same when they grow up which is a worry that's unique to our generation and perhaps the generation before it because our planet is shifting very rapidly. Oceans are rising, temperatures are rising, species are dying, and sources of income are migrating and moving and changing in ways that they've never changed before. And I think that when thinking about climate change and how absolutely apathetic most of our leaders have been towards it, many young people feel like there's nothing that they can do and they're forced to watch the world burn down around them. When I learned about the climate crisis and climate change, I felt that wave of like terror and I realized that I'm not going to ever be the kind of person who can accept that terror and live under it. I'm going to have to be the kind of person who does something about it. Otherwise, I'll be paralyzed in fear of all the possible things that could ever go wrong. And that didn't sound very fun to me. So I talked to other people who were like-minded and I found people around me who had solutions for the climate crisis. And from there, I developed my own understanding of what kind of work I do best, what kind of work my community needs. And seeing the positive effects that my work can have, you know, day to day, person to person, really drives me uh, almost as much as the terror about the future does. So one thing that I'm gathering from your responses, a lot of your urgency and motivation might come from fear of the future and expectations from other people. Is that what I'm I'm getting here? Yeah, I think terror and fear and anxiety are large motivators, which sounds really bad, but <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Racism, the climate crisis, and all sorts of other s- systemic and systematic issues, poverty, unemployment, racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, all those kinds of things feel like they are just boulders rolling down the side of a mountain to crush you. And I think a lot of the times people who are part of those marginalized groups find that their motivation lies within the desire for self-preservation as well as, you know, preserving the lives and the happiness and the innocence of other people like them. How do you 
prioritize your mental health on top of this because these are obviously very stressful anxiety producing things that exist all throughout the world not just regional here on MDI this is a reality for people across the globe so how do you Sarohi Kumar stay afloat of all of this I think that's a difficult question to answer my journey to understand how to put myself first was a long and a bumpy one and I really didn't understand why mental health was so important until I hit the rock bottom that comes from not taking care of yourself. So in November of 2020, myself and some other students and community members tried to declare a climate emergency in Bar Harbor. And throughout that process, we faced some opposition from ignorant members of the public and just people who didn't understand or believe in what we were doing. And it was difficult for me as a 15-year-old to understand why adults who had so much power in my mind saw this thing bearing down on us, but didn't want or care enough to do anything about it. If you care, I thought in my head, you know, if you're the kind of adult who says, you know, you're so brave for coming forward and speaking about this, and we really do care about the climate crisis, and yada, 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 but we're not going to pass your climate emergency declaration, or we're not going to give you the funding you need for this group. How can you say those things and still say that you care? That was like the fundamental misunderstanding that I had. I I just couldn't understand that. And it ate me up inside. I wasn't sleeping very well. I wasn't eating very healthily. I wasn't interacting with my friends because of the frustration and anxiety I felt about my future and about this climate emergency. So it all sort of came to a head at this breakfast we had where a family friend was asking me about the kind of work that we were doing, how we were passing the climate emergency, what kind of people we were interacting with. And he kept proposing you know, different things. And I kept having to tell him that, you know, this isn't possible. This isn't possible because people don't want to give this kind of money. People don't want to give it this kind of attention. And I got so frustrated and worked up that, you know, how could this family friend not see that I'm trying as hard as I can, but nothing is happening that I started crying at the breakfast table. I was hyperventilating. I was like crying and I couldn't stop. And I was big, loud tears. (laughs) And after that, you know, I was like, I still want to do this climate work, but it's wrecking me. It's tearing me apart inside. Mm. So I started seeing a therapist. Shout out to Amelia. I started seeing a therapist and she really did help me. She helped me understand that fighting the climate crisis and later systemic racism isn't a solo effort. You have people around you who you can rely on. Uh, The problem has been here since longer than you were alive. And unfortunately, it's going to be here until long after, you know, I'm gone. Mm. But on the plus side, that means that there have been people fighting it for as long as I've been alive and for longer. And if I take a break for my mental health, the world isn't going to fall apart around me any more than it already is. So, Sarohi, I recently just learned that you were born in Chicago. I, I had known that you lived in Dallas beforehand, before you moved here. But you were born in Chicago. How long did you reside there? We lived there for five years, and then we moved to Dallas when I was five, and then here when I was... 10. So I've lived every place five years and we're coming up on our seventh year in Bar Harbor. We left Chicago because of my dad's work. He's a associate professor now at the Jackson Lab. But when we lived in Chicago and and Dallas, he worked in Joe Takahashi's lab. And as the lab migrated across the country from UCSD to Chicago to Dallas, he followed where his work went. I don't know how much of those locations, Dallas, Chicago, have an impact on you and like your cultural lens on the world and everything do you have a deep attachment with either of those places both of them neither uh, how, how does chicago and dallas play a role in your life chicago doesn't play a huge role in my life mostly because i was five when we left so i don't have many conscious memories of it but i know it shaped a lot of how my parents 
see the world, specifically my mother, because it's where they lived for the longest time after she got married and she had me. And she's she'd moved from India to America when she was 27, and she'd lived in India her whole life. This was her first time coming to America. So when they moved from California to Chicago, it was really the first time she'd ever lived in a big industrial city like Chicago. And I know it was the first time she'd ever interacted with a diverse group like the lab that my dad was in. So many different people from European backgrounds and from East Asian backgrounds. So I think she was really lucky in that it was a cultural hot pot and it wasn't the sort of bleak, homogenous landscape that we have here in the winter (laughs) and most of the year. But Dallas, I think, shaped me in some very interesting ways. We lived in Highland Park, which was a nice neighborhood with a very good school. It was very rich and very white. The couples who lived in Highland Park who had kids that I went to school with were very cookie cutter. Most of them were high school sweethearts. We'd gotten married. The moms were stay-at-home moms. The fathers were the kind that went to parties and smoked cigars. (laughs) So my parents stood out very drastically compared to that and they, I know they faced a lot of subtle exclusionary behaviors because of that. They were young, brown, my mom worked, my dad worked. I was rather outspoken <laughs> as a young child and many people didn't like that. One of my most prevalent memories I have was one of the birthdays I had in Dallas. For my birthday gifts, I got a Bible from one of my friend's mom. We're Hindus, it's been difficult to practice here because there is no temple, but we are Hindus and most of the neighborhood that we lived in was very Christian. So that was like one of the very, well, less subtle, but it was one of the tiny ways that people tried to make my parents and I feel like we didn't really belong there. Uh, most of the things that have happened that happened in Dallas, there were many, but I didn't identify them until I moved here and I sort of gained a conscious understanding of what my race meant. And I think that in many ways I'm lucky that I moved here because I don't l- think I would have liked the person that I would have become if I grew up in Dallas. But I'm also lucky to have my experiences in Dallas, not only because of the excellent friends I made there, but because it taught me that no matter how much people think that you're too loud or too female or too brown. So most of my BIPOC friends, I will say, kind of have first rude awakening moment when they realize they're not really like their uh, white MDI friends. And of course, we both moved from two different places. So did you have this awakening, let's say, before you moved here or after you moved here? When was the first time you noticed that hey, I'm a little bit different from everybody else around me? I never really had a conscious flip of a switch moment. I more had uh, a slow boil. I've always been slightly aware that I was different, mostly because my conscious memory was from Dallas, where, like I said earlier, people thought I was too loud and too brown. I'm good at math. (laughs) And one of my earlier memories in a classroom was a teacher telling my parents at a parent-teacher conference that Sorohi is too bossy. She likes telling other people what to do too much and she should really not be bossing other kids around. And the reason why the teacher told my parents that was because I had been helping other students with their math and correcting them when they got problems wrong. Granted, sometimes my help was unsolicited, but most of the time people had asked, you know, Sirhi, you're good at math, can you please tell me what I'm doing wrong? And I would say, you need to do this or you need to do that instead. And the teachers I had didn't like that behavior at all. They thought that I was too outspoken and too brash. So I had always been very conscious of the fact that I was different, not only because I was openly smarter than most of my classmates, but because I was called out for that behavior and that people didn't like when I did that. I moved here in the middle of the school year from 
Texas, and if anyone knows anything about MDI, there isn't a ton of movement of people off and on the island. Most of the kids who I go to school with have known each other since preschool and have grown up together. So that in and of itself made me sort of a outsider just for a little bit until I got embraced into the community. So I think for a long time I've been consciously aware that I was different. Although to answer your question about a moment, I think the story that I told earlier about that teacher was one of the first times anyone's openly said something to me where I felt really offended by it. I have identified it as a, a racially based comment. One of the first times that I remember though, funny and sad story, on my first day of kindergarten, when my mom came to pick me up from school, she found me crying on the side of the playground because the other kids didn't want to play with me because I looked like an alien. This was because I was a young brown child and these were all young white kids. That's ironic because the Immigration and Naturalization Act uh -huh. does identify uh, immigrants as, as aliens. aliens. Yeah. They use that as a term uh -huh. of description. Uh -huh. And I've often wondered why, I mean, who came up with uh -huh. that? What and, and why? It's just, it's just another word for foreign. You are listening to Downey's Diversity on WERU-FM. And our guest today is Roy Kumar. And she is sharing about her life growing up as a diverse kid on Mount Desert Island. So, Sarohi, you are an only child. I am. Can you speak to that just a little bit? Because I know I have... I have some half-siblings, I have some step-siblings, I have a full biological sister, mm -hmm. but I've never had the true experience of being by myself. What What does that mean? I think being an only child, only children are known for being a little bit selfish and a little bit annoying, which I definitely think we can be, but in terms of growing up brown, I think being an only child was really interesting. Culturally, there are very few brown-only children, especially in India. A lot of people have a lot of siblings. Being an only child was in an interesting experience for me outside of the typical jealousy that all only children feel because they want the sibling relationship that you see on TV that I now know is not entirely accurate all the time. But outside of wanting sort of a sibling just because I wanted to have a friend to talk to whenever, when I got a bit older and I started having questions about my race and what growing up brown in a predominantly white environment was like, I really wanted someone to talk to about that kind of thing. I don't have any other Indian friends my age here on MDI. There's a large, a relatively large Indian community because of the Jackson Lab, which is a scientific-based institution, so there are a lot of Indians there. But they all have children who are in elementary and middle school, and when I was really starting to have these questions in my first few years of living here, none of them were old enough to really understand what I was talking about. And it was during that time that I really craved being able to ask someone, is it normal to feel like you're different from all your friends? Is it normal to have your lunch made fun of because it quote-unquote smells weird? <laughs> all my friends would talk about how they went and visited their grandparents over the weekend, but I couldn't do that because half of my grandparents are across the country and the other half are across the world. So these were all these questions. I couldn't ask my mom th this kind of thing because she grew up Indian and my dad grew up in Memphis, which is primarily black, so he didn't grow up in a primarily white environment either. So I, I really felt isolated and alone and sort of drowning in this kind of confusion because I didn't have anyone to talk to about this kind of thing. It was during that time, I think, that I've never craved a sibling more because I just wanted someone to really talk to about that kind of thing. So, Sarohi, how did you learn how to cope with this? You didn't have the sibling for an outlet that you wanted. How were you able to communicate with other people? Did you find a group of people that you were able to communicate with? Yeah, I think one of the defining 
moments when I realized that I wasn't alone in my cultural and racial experience was the summer between my freshman and sophomore year. I went to an, an artificial intelligence computer science camp in Arizona, which is almost as nerdy as it sounds, I know, but it was one of the first times I'd ever been truly surrounded by other Indian kids who are my age. And this was like a revelation for me. It's one of the most unique experiences I've ever had because not only was I surrounded by other kids who really liked computer science and were as passionate about learning as I was, they were also brown and understood the pressures of being brown as well as I did. Most of them were from the Arizona and California area, so they had grown up with a large Indian community around them, but they were still Indian kids raised in America. And I keep in contact with those kids to this day because there's nothing really like being able to talk about, you know, how alone you feel when you bring leftovers for lunch and everyone says that your food smells weird. And they're just these really unique things that I feel like I can relate to those people with. You mentioned that you kind of found not necessarily a home, but it was a very unique experience for you to have these people who understood what it, what it's like to be culturally Indian. But you living in a predominantly white area, did you ever have a feeling of being left out and not being able to associate with them because you didn't have the experience that they did living in Arizona? Mm-hmm. The Arizona and California area. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say I've necessarily felt left out with other kids like them because I think they also understand that You know, when you grow up in America, no matter how connected you are to the American Indian culture, you're still not as Indian as you would be if you grew up there. And I know I've talked to them about this fear of, like, going to India and not feeling like you belong there. And that's been really frustrating for me because I never felt like I fit in here completely when I was growing up. But I would also go visit India and I never felt like I fit in there because all the kids my age spoke Hindi fluently, which I still don't to this day. I behaved like an American. India is a very patriarchal country, so there's a lot of pressure on women to behave according to certain gender norms, and I didn't fulfill those either. I felt very alone for a long time within my cultural identity, and even, you know, my mom is very connected to India. It's where she grew up for 27 years. So I would talk to her about that kind of thing, but she also couldn't entirely relate. I haven't really found a solution, but I feel less alone now. I work as much as I can to learn the language to listen to the music, to truly embrace my culture. I used to be embarrassed by it because I felt so alone in America, and I thought if I rejected it, other people would accept me more easily, which is just not true. So I've actively worked to embrace my culture, to learn the language, to talk to my grandparents and my aunts and uncles who grew up and live in India, because I understand that like I do no one but myself a disservice if I'm ashamed of my heritage. I really want to learn as much as possible. And I think you're right in saying that there is no one solution to that issue. You just have to involve yourself in as many different ways as you can with your heritage and your culture to really be at home as much as possible. I know that there are kids here, most of the kids here have a very limited understanding of what the black experience is like in America because they're all white and they're surrounded by white people and their (laughs) knowledge of black culture is what they see on the TV and that's not always realistic. Do you feel sometimes like you have to be the sole carrier of what black culture looks like on MDI? Yes and no. I definitely feel that there's a pressure that I have to represent, but I do know that not all black people are me and I'm not all black people. I am biracial, so but I do uh, have a privilege of sort with my lighter skin. I know that people with darker skin face a greater amount of injustice that I do. I have a privilege that comes with the skin color. I do try to carry grace because I know that I'm viewed as the sole black person most of the time in the high school community. So I do try to uh, steer away from stereotypes as much as I can. I don't know, stereotypes 
tend to be true sometimes. Like, I, I like listening to hip-hop and rap music. I like playing basketball. It's inevitable that, you know, I, fall, I kind of fall into these. So I try to do it with as much grace as possible, but knowing deep down that I'm not going to be able to represent all of these people because I truly can't. So, Suroi and Charlie, it's been a pleasure just sitting back and listening to you to have this dialogue about your experiences. And it's truly inspiring to have both of you be in our community as a mom who has two biracial kids that are growing up here on the island and are constantly looking for role models and people that they can look up to. I am just so glad that they have you two to look up to. And so here's a question for both of you. Do you ever feel any pressure or the weight of all the what the experience might be when they end up here as you go about your life? Yeah, I think I'm lucky in that I'm Indian and most of the stereotypes pushed on Indian people and Asian people in general are part of the model minority myth. We're stereotyped in positive, if less openly harmful ways, you know, as smart, submissive, good at following orders. I know that there's less of a negative pressure on me to represent myself, and that's part of my privilege. But I do feel that pressure sometimes, but I, I like to think of it more as a gift because there are so many young brown women growing up on MDI right now, and I think that I'm very lucky that I'm in a position where I can have bared the hardships that I've bared so I can help them when they get older. And I consider it a gift that I'm going to be able to talk to my young cousins who live in Memphis and who live in Boston and Philadelphia and tell them that, you know, you might be a brown person living in what feels like a white America, but you're not alone. I'm here to help you and I'm here to answer any questions you might have. And no matter how alone you feel, you have me. I'm in a way grateful for my experiences because I really think that that's one of my most important jobs. Absolutely. What about you, Charlie? I think it would do it injustice if I said I didn't feel any pressure and that sort. I tried to hide it as much as possible and seem that things are going as carefree and easy as possible, but it's definitely on the back of my mind almost at all times. Whenever I'm out in public, I, I do try to seem as nonviolent or unthreatening as possible uh, just because I don't want anybody to see me as a stereotypical black man uh, around here. I want to represent my community well as well as I can. I want to prove uh, ignorant people wrong that, you know, I can code switch and I can communicate with you. And a part of me does want to prove ignorant people around here wrong. I want to show that, you know, black men can be intelligent, well-spoken, uh, soft and caring. I use a lot of my own energy to portray that image to the community. What does the future look like for both of you? <laughs> I know that my son, JJ, who's 13 right now, being the only he and his sister, Kemi, are the, pretty much the only biracial kids at school. They are, you know, kind of struggling with this idea of do I want to be, continue to be the only one or should I, you know, go somewhere else where I'm one of many? Do you see yourselves Staying in Maine, do you see yourselves <laughs> venturing out, given everything we've talked about today? I would like to see myself at a HBCU. Uh, I'm looking to apply to Howard in the fall, and also Morehouse in Atlanta, where I'm from. So I'd like to see myself at HBCU, uh, kind of leave Maine for a little bit. My mother still resides here, so of course I'll be able to visit her, and my sister also wants to be in the Northeast. I don't know if Maine is necessarily a permanent home for me, but it, it will forever be a part of who I am, no matter how much I want to admit it at the moment. I know, I know that it will definitely have an impact on who I am in the future. It might not always be my home, but I, I always will have a place to come back to. Yeah. That's absolutely fantastic. What about you, Siroi? 
wherever I go, I do want to be in a place where I'm surrounded by more diversity. So I want to go in a place where I can challenge these subconscious expectations that I know that I have. And more than that, just as a gift to myself, I want to go to a place where I can be shamelessly intelligent and loud and as much of a leader as I want to be without having to worry that I'm betraying my race or holding up to some stereotype that I don't want to be providing evidence for. So I think that's one of the things I'll definitely keep in mind. As much as we feel that level of responsibility to our community in terms of creating a level of awareness, I'm hoping that this has been a rewarding and enriching experience for each one of you. Do you have any parting words for our audience? I I just want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to this. I definitely think conversations like these are what the world needs. And it's definitely a step towards progress, in my opinion. I think more conversations should definitely be open. So I appreciate anyone who enjoyed this and listened all the way through. Thanks, Charlie. Like what Charlie said, I appreciate uh, people for listening, for tuning in. And I would just invite you to challenge your expectations. I think especially if you're someone who resides in Maine or has resided in Maine for a long time, living in a place that looks like where we live comes with a set of expectations and pre-understood knowledge that isn't always correct. And I invite you to challenge that and to open your mind to new experiences by listening to other people's conversations and stories and just by talking to the people around you. There's value in diversity. And thank you so much for joining us today for yet another incredible episode of Downey's Diversity. Until next time, thank you both so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much. A huge thank you to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in today. A special thanks to Healthy Acadia, the Criterion, the Main Justice Foundation, and our radio host, WERU. Learn more about our next episode by visiting our website, downeastdiversity.com. I'm Aline Siston, your host. Until next time, Asanteni. Thank you.